I consider it a true privilege to be here this morning with you, to be able to share from the word, to see familiar faces, to see new faces, to report, and to have the privilege of sharing from the word. I, um, I have such fond memories of, of our time here, of how God worked uh, in us, through us, how he put special people in our path um, to encourage us and to challenge us. And it was very significant. The fact is, I arrived at Bible college very, very young. And uh, there was a lot of things that I wasn't able to glean or learn from because of my youth and immaturity. And there was a sense in which a lot of the valuable things I should have learned then, I learned here. And that was thanks to the investment of, of many people. I, of course, want to um, make a point of thanking you for your sacrificial giving and your faithfulness these many years. That's not lost on us. There have been times where um, we've had to tighten the belt more, sometimes a little bit less, but a constant in all that has been your faithful sacrificial giving, and and we want to thank you for that. Uh, I would also like to especially thank the current leadership, Pastor Harris, everyone else. Uh, For these recent years, what I would consider... And don't understand any complaint, but your greater engagement in watching out um, for us and checking in with us. That includes some of the elders as well. And I think that's both your right and it's also a great blessing to us. Um, There's times in our corner of the world where we can start thinking that we're alone or we're the only ones. It's not true, but sometimes it feels that way. So that greater engagement, that's something I value and I thank you for. So as your representatives in South America, and Limerick has quite a few, so I should say in my particular corner of South America, um, it's my privilege to share a little bit with you. And and this time, honestly, I just feel like it's very different. Uh, We haven't been on that many furloughs, 15 years on the field. They call us veterans. just can't quite understand the idea that with 15 or 16 years of ministry, you're, you're a veteran. So some of you have here for a very long time, you might remember a George Black. Well, he was faithful till 101, so I think he managed to log in something like 70 years. So you'll understand why to me 15 years seems like absolutely nothing. But at any rate, um, in previous furloughs, I've always felt like it was incredibly difficult to try to explain to you what we were going through. It's just too far away the, the language is too different. The culture is too different. And I don't even know how, how to bridge the distance. And this time around, honestly, it just feels a little bit easier. The details maybe are different, but a lot of what we've had to live through in the last few years, you've had to live through things that are similar enough that I feel like it's not that difficult to explain. So, for example, we were recently with my sister-in-law, in the Twin Cities, just a a few blocks away from where uh, all related to to the George Floyd case went down. Very much impacted that neighborhood, that city, that state, this country. Well, it's not the same thing, but in October of 2019, our country that had had 30 years of complete peace and no unrest just blew up in social unrest. We're talking about uh, lighting subways on fire, pillaging stores. It was just unbelievable. And though it's not the same scale and the details are not the same, I think I don't have to explain to you how we feel. Maybe in our case it was a little more severe, but 
you have some notion when I try to explain to you what unrest looks like. And then I understand you had an election recently in this country, yeah? Well, in our case, uh, our social unrest got so bad, they're rewriting our Constitution right now. So my sympathy and all that, but they are literally rewriting the Constitution to our country, and we have no idea where it's going. So sympathy, but we have it worse. And then COVID hit everyone, but again, I just have to tell you, that you may not have liked the decisions that your leaders made, but we would go sometimes up to 11 weeks with permission to leave the house twice a week for two hours at a time. So I'll just say that in our case, it affected us a little more intimately and closer to home. But you know what I'm talking about. If I talk about social unrest, political unrest, and the effects of COVID, I don't feel like I'm having to explain everything, at least not the way you feel about it. So I don't know if I would call that something neat. It's just something different this time around. There's something in common. So I want to share to you in a few minutes uh, from the scriptures, and I'll just say that furlough has become for us a busy time, but a busy time of reflection. It means I'm out of my context, and some of the same questions I have to answer every three years when I come back on furlough. More about that in a moment. So not all of you would be familiar uh, with our family and with our ministry, so I'll backtrack a little and then just give the briefest of reports of what the Lord is doing in our corner of the mission field. All right. Um, Just from the picture, I'll say that we live in a wonderful part of southern Chile. If any of you have ever been out to Washington State and maybe hiked Mount Rainier, you have some idea of uh, some of the beauty we enjoy and some of the produce that grows locally as well. So our oldest isn't with us today. Josiah was born while we were here, and uh, he's going back for his second year at Bob Jones. And my daughter's here, and she wants me to go quickly. She's a senior. Elias doesn't mind too much. He's in seventh grade. And Ian, he was born in Chile. He's in kindergarten. He doesn't mind lots of photos and being the center of attention at all. For those of you who don't know, uh, though we have been uh, 15 years in South America, we served nearly seven years first in the country of Uruguay. Uh, We were involved in two church rescue projects there. That's the easiest way I can describe it. And uh, thankfully, both works are are still going on, but the one in Salto in in northern Uruguay is is doing much, much better. And then mid-2012, We were looking for what project God would have for us next, and we received two invitations, both from Chile, one from my brother-in-law. He needed to furlough desperately. He wanted to know if we would come up to the desert, a mining town of about half a million people. We didn't pray much about it. We did pray some, but I wanted it on it. I don't know how stockbrokers work, but I'm sure when they get a hot stock tip, they want in on it as much as they can. To me, this was a no-brainer. It was an amazing ministry opportunity. So we took them up on it. But we also had an invitation to come to a Bible training center in southern Chile. And honestly, I didn't want any part of it. And we had to pray through it. And finally, we agreed. And that's where we're serving today. But today, joyfully and grateful for God's leading. But initially, it wasn't something that drew our our attention. And the Lord opened up a door. And he's made it so rewarding, our time there. All right. So, as we work in a Bible training center, I want to introduce some of our students just briefly. Uh, I want to talk about some of the graduates in the last years and just a quick update on on construction. So,
so um, COVID forced us last year to teach online. Um, Everyone has their own thoughts on that. It was the most horrible year of teaching I've ever had to do, staring at a blank screen and uh, no feedback and hoping they weren't asleep or walked away from the cameras. The uh, internet connections were so bad in the country that some of our students would have to drive uh, a few miles down the road and do what they could with their cell phones. So it it just was so improvised and so rough. I I hope I never have to do that again. This year we had to decide in March whether we were going to take students in or not. Uh, It was very tricky. It was hard to know what the Chilean government, local authorities, health authorities were going to do to us. And in the end, after consulting with lawyers, doctors, the equivalent of the FBI, and some other merciful direction by the Lord, we decided to invite any who would be willing to come full-time and stay in the dorm, like uh, formally change of address and move to the dorm. And we made an exception for three married students. So that meant that our enrollment was down. We were able to take in 17 full-time students. And we had to close the doors to all part-time students because we couldn't have people coming and going. Uh, for health reasons, and honestly, if one of the neighbors wanted to make trouble for us, they could have easily made trouble for us. It happened a lot, uh, specifically to evangelical churches in in Chile. So let me just uh, introduce you to a few of them. These are the third and fourth year students. It was largely because of them that we took the risk to open anyway. Uh, We just didn't want them uh, getting cheated out of some of the, the important years of their training. And I'd like you to meet Veronica. She's from Orgoroso Paisandú, and the only reason I mention her is because um, we didn't just walk away from Uruguay, and it was like we've forgotten all about that, and we don't care, and we've just moved on. It doesn't work that way. So God allowed us to invest about seven years of our life there, and uh, we've had, I guess, four students come from Uruguay, and it's just one of the Lord's mercies in giving us um, still a part of the ministry that is ongoing there. Also recently, we've had a couple of students come from Argentina, down south, just across the border from us. You have to realize the distances in Argentina are such that, for example, with the Depews, we're not talking about anything even close. So uh, great distances, very big country. But it's very, been very encouraging to be able to receive Eduardo and Martin and for them to be part of the, the project as, as well. We're hoping they go back. They have their hearts set on serving their own people. And finally, just introduce you to Sebastian, and uh, he's Chilean through and through, so what's so special about him? Well, he's a pastor's son. His dad uh, still actively pastors, and every time a pastor's son comes, or a pastor's daughter, somehow that to me is very meaningful. It means that somehow, it's always by God's grace, but they were, uh, there must have been some authenticity in that home. There must have been something, and for that I'm very, very grateful. So Sebastián and other pastors, kids that have come, are also an encouragement to us. All right, so that's some of the current students, just quickly graduates in recent years. Uh, we have students that come for one year, and a few go through the entire four-year program. Really, we only have one program, and that program is designed to prepare young men for pastoral ministry. Others are allowed to come and take pieces of that as suits them and helps them serve better. So we give other program names, but there is no other program. There's only one program. So let me just mention uh, some of the ones that have completed the the four-year program in recent times. 
So in 2017, we had two graduates. Uh, Denise was actually preparing to serve as a single missionary. Um, Lord changed her plans. Uh, She's married to a wonderful young guy up in the capital city, about to be a mother. God took her life in a different direction. And Alvaro, he actually hails from northern Chile in a little church that was actually planted by George Black in the northern desert. And uh, he came to study. He was thinking missions as well. But then his church became, uh, lost their, their existing pastor. And he agreed to go back at least for a time and pastor. I'm very encouraged. It doesn't seem to happen too often that things work out that way. Uh, he's also a dad. Little girl, if I remember right. 2018, uh, Victor, he would be about my age. He decided to go back to school, prepare for the pastorate. He's gone to a large city about... Four, and a, four hours north of us, very complicated pastorate, but he is serving as faithfully as he can. And then Samuel, he's a young city boy who decided to accept the call of a country church way up in the mountains among the indigenous people. And he's as city boy as they come, but fortunately, his mother had indigenous background. He's got an indigenous last name, and so that's hard currency in the place where he's serving right now. 2019, Christian from Uruguay, he graduated. He's serving with us as a dorm parent in charge of maintenance and right now vital to our construction efforts. Freddie, also second career. He was a teacher for many years. He's pastoring nearby. Hans, pastoring nearby. And Ruben, also pastoring just a couple hours up the road. And then the year that furnished, finished virtual, the difficult year, Four graduates, Brian, he's pursuing camping ministry. It's been very, very difficult in this context. He's been wanting to do internships, and camps, at least in our end of the world, have all been shut down. Valeria, she married a single teacher of the Bible Institute, and she's joyfully serving. She's been invaluable in helping us with technology for those who weren't able to be there live. Ricardo pastors uh, about 45 minutes up the road from us, And Eliseo is serving as an elder for one year before going on to the pastorate as well. And finally, just a little bit about construction. Uh, That's what things are supposed to look like. We're about halfway there. Mentioned that uh, we had a property in downtown Temuco, dilapidated, fired hazard. And the Lord in his mercy provided a buyer for that property and then provided a seller for a little plot of eight acres just outside our city. On a good day, it's about 20, 25 minutes to get downtown. On a bad day, well, you have the Schuylkill, you know about that. On a bad day, it's not so good. Um, And that's when the project uh, began. So the first thing we did was add faculty housing. The very first thing was uh, the house we would live in. Someone needed to be there as soon as possible to receive uh, shipments to make sure that things didn't walk off. And so that was the first thing that was built. We moved in July of last year, and we're very grateful for that space. We've never lived in a house with insulation in South America. So it's novel for us and very rewarding. And a house for our co-workers as well. They moved in a couple months later. Since then, there's actually been a duplex that's pretty well finished. But the next main thing on the project was a dormitory for about 24 students Um, with a home for the dorm parents built in. Uh, But it's South America, so, I mean, if we need to put 12 more in, we'll just get a few more bunks and no big deal. After all, if you'd seen where they've been living these last years, it's all up up from there. 
And uh, finally, the main building, which is far more along than these photos show, um, but the floor has floor been plor, uh, poured. The metallic structure is up, and um, it's moving forward pretty fast. Um, some of the things that have been difficult about construction were obviously the COVID restrictions, which meant that we would go sometimes months without the workers being able to go to the job site. And secondly, another thing that happened that was similar here to there was that uh, products uh, like plywood, OSB, doubled or tripled, and some things became unavailable, like just plain white tile for bathrooms. We, we haven't been able to get at times. Or, not to make a big deal about it, but you, you needed eight toilets for the dormitory, and you wanted eight of the same toilets, and that was virtually impossible to do. So we've had little challenges like that on the way. It's hard to make a budget to know how much we're going to need to finish, but we're plowing forward and trusting God one day at a time. Any questions you have later, uh, we're glad to answer. And uh, now I'd like to go to nine. As I mentioned before, furlough can be very busy, many miles logged, and yet I think because of the change of circumstance, being able to visit different churches, interact with different people, at least the last couple have been a time of, of profound reflection for me, and, and not always easy. Um, this takes on a, little, a lot of different shapes and forms, but uh, some furloughs I've been able to connect with friends from high school. Uh, I went to a missionary kid's school my last years in Santiago that was run by ABWE, um, which was wonderful because it meant I came back to the States, went to college. I didn't have to take bonehead English. They got me up to speed. But my classmates, they were all missionary kids in my graduating class. And at least two I've been able to reconnect with over the years. And I, uh, almost as soon as we got to the States in Florida, I reconnect, uh, reconnected with one of them. And... Um, it's something about coming out of your context, coming back here, and realizing that people that were in the exact same position that you were at age 17 or 18 have made other decisions in life, have taken other paths, and depending on how you define things, have done very well for themselves. So to come back and to uh, receive lavish hospitality from your high school friend who's living in very, very comfortable circumstances, I think naturally it prods you to ask some of the questions that you've asked yourself before all over again. So that's part of the context. But another thing would be that I had the privilege earlier this year of taking a class, History of Missions. So I didn't take History of Missions or anything like that at Northland. I was a missionary kid. I figured I knew there was everything there was to know about missions, so why be bothered with that kind of thing? But it was incredibly helpful to me And uh, I was able to read a wonderful biography on the life of Hudson Taylor. Not the classic one. It's called Hudson and Mariah. I would very much recommend it to you. It focuses on his time of his first marriage. Of course, you get to see something of the immense sacrifices that Hudson Taylor made. And his wife made because she married down. Like she married way down. There was a lot of people telling her not to marry this guy. So she married down. Great sacrifices He left wonderful opportunities behind. But that's not the only part of the story. You have to ask yourself if that's crazy. Like, is it crazy to dedicate your life to full-time Christian service? Well, you have Hudson Taylor as a case study, but you also have Thomas William Berger, or maybe it's William Thomas. I never can remember. 
But he was a businessman, very wealthy in England. He was in the starch industry, which was a big thing in life in those days. And he uh, was incredibly generous to Hudson Taylor, even before they were formally connected. So time and time again, he'd given away his last penny. He'd bought medicines, and a check would come in from this guy. Because initially, he went out with a terrible mission board. Eventually, he formed his own. But what I would say about him is he eventually retired, this Mr. Berger, who was incredibly wealthy and gave much to the cause of missions. But his passion for missions was such that he came out of retirement, retook the reins of his company so that he could make it as prosperous as possible so he could give as much as possible. So both of those lifestyles, Hudson's, Hudson Taylor's, and Mr. Berger's lifestyle could be seen as um, very foolish, a very foolish approach to life. So my own reflections, some of my studies, and that takes us to Psalm 39. So I don't, want to take, I don't want you to take this like um, I'm speaking harshly to you. I'm certainly trying to challenge you, and I'm trying to cause you reflection. But I suppose the real reason that uh, God places something on your heart as a missionary when you're about to visit all these churches, and you're going to visit, and you're going to be sharing essentially a lot of the same things, is probably because you, as a missionary, need it really, really bad. So understand that, too, as, as I share. You may not have thought on the book of Psalms as a missionary book. Um, Now, if you'd read one of the more popular books on missions, written by John Piper, Let the Nations Be Glad, he takes an idea or a verse from Psalm 67, he drives it home, and all of a sudden you at least have one psalm that has a real missionary bent. I've heard Psalm 2 used this way. I don't believe that's appropriate. But Psalm 67 and others speak of the fact that the nations are to rejoice, that they are to hear. David says that he he will share something of God's goodness and greatness among them. So the idea of that book is that missions exist because worship doesn't. Because God is not worshipped as he ought to be, cherished and enjoyed. Missions exist. So I think that's, that's excellent. Now, I'm going to Psalm 39 today, and it's going to say absolutely nothing directly about missions. It's just going to speak to some of this inner turmoil. How should I spend this life? What would misspending this life look like? What would true success in this life look like? I think there we find some answers here. And we'll try to correlate it in some ways to the missionary enterprise. So we've read Psalm 39. Thank you very much, brother, for doing that. There's different translations um, that I've had to read that from. And let me tell you, after three years of Spanish... Coming back to the States, that's not always easy. So thank you for doing that for us. This is one of four psalms that wraps up uh, the first book of the Psalter. There's five books in the Psalter. And and you should read it with the following ones. If you do take chance later and read 39, keep reading. You'll be encouraged. Uh, This is plenty encouraging, but you'll find some wonderful things in the psalms that follow. Psalm is written by David, supposed to be performed by one of his musicians, Jeduthun. Proper names are brutal. Every time I come back, I can't work my way through it. I never studied phonetics, um, so I just have to remember or make it up as I go. This psalm is a psalm of lamentation. At least that's one way of classifying it. That means that there's a passionate plea to God that normally wraps up in a hopeful expression in God's mercy of hope. Um, This one works a little bit differently. It doesn't seem to end the way most of them end. But it's still this lament, passionate, pleading with God, and there's a hopeful note. 
That's generally what happens. So if we're singing the psalm, this isn't Psalm 1, this isn't Psalm 150. Um, I know just enough about music uh, to mess around on a guitar, but this would be in a minor key, okay? So this isn't a celebratory thing. This is, this is in a minor key. And I think that's important. So with that perspective, having read the psalm, let's move forward. So I'm going to focus specifically, mostly on verses 4 to 12, but let me, let me just address briefly uh, verses uh, 1 to 3. Now, it's not completely clear what David is experiencing here. Uh, we know that he's in anguish. We know that he's surrounded by enemies. Uh, we know that he's purposed to remain silent. And it seems like if he speaks, God is going to be disrespected. That much we can draw from these first verses. But ultimately, he says he's compelled to speak. There's like a fire. He can't contain it, and he speaks. But for me, the real mystery here is when he finally speaks, was it what he was trying to say all along? Or during his time of self-imposed silence and reflection, has he come to new, truer knowledge of God? And now what he speaks, is it different? Well, I don't, I don't know that. I happen to think it's, it's the second idea, that he's had a time of self-imposed uh, reflection, and now he speaks wisdom of this time, what he's learned about God. Uh, he's come to a fuller understanding. I don't know if like Job, but, but something like that comes to mind. But ultimately, he's compelled to speak, and these verses at least give us a notion of what his frame of mind is. And we see that his, that his silence gives way to speech, and the speech gives way to hope. There's a progression, even though it works a little bit differently, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So verses 4 to 13, we see him crying out to God. We see, for example, in verse 4, Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. We see in in verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. We see in verse 10, remove your plague from me. We see in verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. And finally in 13, remove your gaze from me. So we see David pleading earnestly with God in this particular chapter. So what I'd like to do this morning, while making some occasional mentions of, of how this may be relevant to the cause of worldwide missions, uh, but that'll be minimal, let's just consider three basic things, two ideas that are very clear in the text, and, and the third almost by way of application. The first idea is very simple. It's right there on the surface in front of us, and it's the idea that life is short. The second idea is that God is our only hope. And the third idea, like I said, is more by way of application. We should live accordingly. If these things are true, we should live accordingly. And that has some relevance for missions, has some relevance for any full-time ministry, or for men like William Thomas Berger, who lived so counterculturally at a time where he could have comfortably retired and uh, enjoyed all his life's work, he chose a very different countercultural direction. So whatever the case may be, um, let's look at this particular passage. Now, life is short, and this should seem very, very obvious, but have you noticed that we live in a society where it seems like, especially the younger people, but all ages, they do the very best they can to banish uh, this reality from their consciousness. 
Many live their lives uh, as if there's no end in sight. That'd be an apt way of describing how they live this life. They may plan for retirement, but many act like they're going to live forever. We've driven through Philadelphia several times in recent weeks. Got to see two different times guys doing very stupid things on motorbikes um, on on the interstate. And I just had to think, uh, these guys really have no, no idea. They're living life as if they were some superhero or, or as if they're eternal. But even Christians can become wrapped up in the affairs of this life and forget that this life is a fleeting pilgrimage, that we are pilgrims and that we are strangers. So it may be pervasive in our society to live life in a certain way. I think in some ways it creeps into our thinking. So we tend to sink down deep, deep roots, and we forget that we will be someday uprooted. Um, and even those who have, got, who have a little bit of whatever you want to call it, um, gypsy blood like myself, who seem to be rootless, more wings than roots, um, but that's, that's not the sense I, I'm giving it here. The fact is, our lifespan is not substantial, and the accomplishments of our life are not substantial. So working with my dad, which was the trauma of every summer and every Saturday of my high school life, he taught me all kinds of things I wish I didn't know how to do at very early hours of those mornings. Uh, he would often have this saying, my dad cares nothing for aesthetics. So this beautiful place, I come back here and I'm all amazement. That's not the deal with him. The deal with him is, is it going to last 100 or 200 years? And if that's the case, then all is good. But he would often say about things, uh, no one's going to care in 50 years. Like, let's move on. Like, don't, don't put any more paint on that. No more plaster on that. In 50 years, no one's going to care. Well, he's very pragmatic that way. But there's a little truth in that. The things that we obsess about or glory in probably aren't going to make a whole lot of difference in 50 years. They're probably not going to be noticed. But we act, on the one hand, we we criticize our presidents and their leaders for for their desire to leave a legacy. And yet there's a a bit of that in the way we live, uh, wanting this, this legacy. So this clearly troubles David. It's not just that he's surrounded by his enemies. It's, it's not just his sin that he wants to be freed from, and certainly God's discipline because of his sin. But I think the brevity of life is is part of what he's struggling with here. So no matter how healthy the lifestyle, how little risk you take, how blessed your gene pool is, the fact is and remains that life is short. Um, You could preach some of these same ideas from Psalm 90. You could certainly go to the book of Ecclesiastes and meditate on some of these things, which has been interesting because that's what I've been reading partly in my devotions this week. But David, he recognizes, he says in verse 4, he says, the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. He says in verse 5, you've made my days like handbreadths, And we don't measure significant things in handbreadths. I think horses are still the only thing we measure in, in hands. Um, in, in verse 5, he compares his age He says it says nothing before you, before God's eternity. Verse 6, he says uh, that men, uh, they walk about like a shadow. And of course, that uh, shadow doesn't survive a day, doesn't even survive normally half a day. And then in verse 7, he he repeats this idea of um, uh, that man is, is a vapor, which if you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to find that book translated as vanity. Uh, man is a vapor, 
man is, is vanity. And then in verse 12, he says that like all God's people before, and we could say after as well, that he, he admits he's, he's a wayfaring stranger. And, and in verse 13, he recognizes that his death and his departure, time of departure is, is at hand. And, and so he pleads with God to make him know his end and how fleeting the nature of his life is. And, and he intends to face the days ahead instructed by this knowledge. He, he's not going to live as he has lived here going forward. He, he's going to live instructed uh, by, by this. And so he asks God to teach him. And, and additionally, if we look at the text, we learn that not only is life short and fleeting, it's actually made worse by things like sin. So he pleads in verse 8 to be delivered from his transgressions. So this life is fragile, it's fleeting. There's so much that we could put in the category of vanity, but there's additional anguish that stems from sin. We live in a world marred by sin, where sinners hurt each other every day, and we add to our own affliction with our selfish, sinful choices. This is reality. Now, there's other realities, too, which with we, we temper these thoughts, but this is true. And then in, in verse 6, he, he makes mention of, of something that sounds very much like out of the book of, of Ecclesiastes. He says, surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. We pursue status, comfort, safety, all that's, that, that is promised by material goods. But even when we manage to gather a good pile, the satisfaction is short-lived and often dearly, dearly bought. I'm so grateful my high school friend has managed to keep his family. He's prioritized that. We may have taken different directions in life, but he hasn't achieved what he's achieved by sacrificing his family, at least, which unfortunately happens too much. And then we leave our piles to those we love, but then very often those piles become matters of contention, and they can easily be squandered by those who didn't work for them. I won't go into the details, but my grandparents have all passed away. Mom's side of the family, very godly family. Even there, I saw what the inheritance did. Didn't do all it could have done, but it caused problems. And then on my dad's side, it was very bad. By people who at least claimed to be Christian, it wasn't a good thing. And that's often the case, unfortunately. And then in verse 11, it's perhaps not as clear in our translation, but um, it speaks of, of the moth and how it uh, takes away health. In Scripture, normally the moth is, is related to treasures and making them disappear. And I think it's something near and dear to the heart. So whether that's health or treasure, whatever the case may be, um, God in his mercy sees sometimes that our, that our treasures are consumed. So here David realizes that God, in his exalted condition as our father, often consumes what is dear to his children to his wayward children specifically. We, of course, long for a generous God who will give us exactly what we want, but we have instead a loving God who is merciful enough to withhold and take away. Whether we like that or not, it remains true. So the question I ask here, after this very simple observation, is uh, this idea that life is short, that it's a passing thing. Can my ambitions and can my life pursuits, can they withstand the scrutiny of the brevity of life? 
Or am, am I le- living foolishly? In light of this fact, this undeniable fact that life is short, that there's just a passing shadow, that life is in a real sense vanity, it's a breath, and it's not warranted by the text, but if you think of breath and if you think of life, there's kind of this inhaling, which is the, the passage to, uh, to middle age, and there's the exhaling. It's, it's so brief, so very brief. Um, am I wasting this fleeting shadow? Am I wasting this passing breath? And that's why what you think about giving your life for the cause of missions, whether that would be in business or whether that would be going or whatever the case may be, whether or not it looks foolish, well, has everything to do with how you view life. And depending on how you view life, you'll answer that question differently. Let's move forward. I don't want to leave it there. So normally, a lamentation ends with this strong expression of confidence and hope in God and exhortation to wait patiently for the Lord. Here we're going to find the hope in the middle, in verse 7. So it works a little bit differently here. And it says, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. My hope is in you. Others have placed their hope elsewhere. Maybe in the past he has too. But now it's going to be different. By this point, David is trusting in God alone. And he expresses that very clearly here in the middle. So he understands, based on his pleading in verse 8, to be released, uh, uh, liberated from his transgressions. He knows that there's nobody else that that can free him from his transgressions. He knows by now that no one else is there who can safeguard investments for eternity where treasures are safe from moth, uh, moths, rust, and thieves. He alone can safeguard. He, he understands that God disciplines his children. He can be heavy-handed at times and refuses sometimes their foolish restraint, uh, requests and, and often frustrates their imprudent ambitions. This is our, our loving God. He hears the honest pleas of his children. We see this in verse 12, where David speaks with a sincerity that is just so uncharacteristic of us. Because we're good, we're always good. And in verse 13, he is the hope at the end of the stranger, the pilgrim's road. So God, what we see is that that in his great mercy to David and to us, he, he sends affliction so that the comfortable can see this life for what it is. He strips away the veneer. He brings us face to face with reality and, and it's painful. It can be very painful, but God's knife is the surgeon's knife. He intends to heal. He doesn't intend to kill. Now, if this life were only brief, frustrating, uh, meaningless, we wouldn't have much option but despair. But that's not the way it works because this life is lived in the presence of a good, sovereign God who can reverse even the most negative circumstances we face. There is always room for hope in God. So we live it differently. Uh, there's one commentator, Futato, who's speaking of, of this particular a chapter, he, he mentioned something that I'd heard before, but I just like the way he said it. He said, because of Jesus' death, in a real sense, even death is becoming undone. Now, there's a consummation, there's something still future, but you would almost say that there's, there's nothing he can't intervene. 
So in this life, there are random distractions. There are many random distractions. But there is only one hope. Everything else falls in a separate category. So in this life, you can bury yourself in labors, in hobbies, in academic pursuits, and in human relationships. And we live in times where you can drown your sorrows not just in substance abuse or entertainment, but you even have virtual pursuits. This whole new thing that's opened up, virtual reality. But the fact of the matter is we remain created beings and we are utterly dependent on our maker. The human race and then each of us individually, we've chosen to go our own way and we've reaped the reward of our rebellion, individually and collectively. And if God doesn't provide for our rescue, there is no hope, none whatsoever. But praise God for Jesus Christ, the Son from heaven, from whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So if you're here this morning, if you're aware that you need to be reconciled to God, please talk to any of us, talk to any of the pastors, any of the members here. There is hope for you and only hope for you in God's Son, Jesus Christ. So God alone grants enduring happiness. And that's why, despite your fear, God can make you happy in the place and in the profession of his choosing. Because enduring happiness in this life is not about the right set of circumstances. You may think that way, or if you say differently in your heart of hearts, you may still feel that way. You may feel that you have to be in a certain circumstance, in a certain career, in a certain place, and surrounded by certain people, but that just won't hold up. Under this idea that our hope alone is Jesus Christ, that the, the enduring happiness is only found in God. So that this is where I, w- I would like to make a quick application. The, the fact of the matter is, if this is true, that God alone is our hope, and, and he alone is the source of enduring happiness, then, if that be true, he can grant you a fulfilling, fruitful life of service in the most complicated neighbor of the Twin Cities of, of Minnesota. Norristown. I don't know what the worst parts of Philly are. But if this be true, that he is the source of enduring happiness, then this is true. And if I were to take it to missions, I would then say that that he can grant you a fulfilling, fruitful life in a country where you're never going to master the local language and where you're going to be singled out as a foreigner every single day of the rest of your life. Because if he's the source of enduring happiness, this is true, regardless of how I feel about it. I would just have to say that my wife has lived this in ways I can't even imagine. Uh, I'm the missionary kid that went back to South America. I've had it easy. Even though there's not a lot of bald guys in Chile. So that's been a trial. God bless the native people of Chile with amazing hair. So you do stand out sometimes. David trusted God. That much is evident. He knew far less than we do that lived this side of the cross. He lived on the other side of the cross. So much he had to take by faith that we know about in detail. So different. How much more reason to make God our only hope? So don't believe the false dichotomy that there's two options out there. Pursuing God or pursuing happiness doesn't work that way. Make God your hope. Find enduring happiness in his presence. So sister, brother, God alone grants respite in this life, secure promises for the life to come, and that's the truth. 
God is your only hope. And he's also the only hope of the nations, the tribes, the peoples, and the tongues. And if we have hope, if you have hope, if I have hope, are we not duty-bound to share it? I won't answer that because I think the answer is self-evident. So here we ask ourselves, do my ambitions, do my pursuits acknowledge the reality that God alone is our hope? Or am I treasuring hopeless distractions? And I would say to some extent that's true of all of us. Finally, just a brief thought. If life is short, if God is our only hope and these things are evident in the passage and they're eminently true, then we should live accordingly. This is just an observation, and that is that the truths that uh, change our behavior are the truths we believe, truly believe. Um, Just a couple of examples. Uh, We believe in the law of gravity. So when we climb the ladder to fix our roofs, roofs, we, we tread carefully. Nowadays, I think you're required to wear harnesses and all kinds of things that were not available or in use when I was young. I was so scared of my dad, I went up the ladder no matter what, and we fixed the roof no matter what. Uh, We believe in in laws of inertia, so we fix the brakes on our car because we know it would be catastrophic to, to ignore them. So what would believing that life is short, that God is our only hope, look like in terms of our daily life? Well, it would have to be all-encompassing. It would have to affect everything. It would have to affect who I befriend, and it would have to affect why I befriend them, who I marry, why I marry, what pastimes I pursue, how much importance I assign them, what I study and why I study, where I work and why I work, where I give, how much I give, and once again, why I give because there's a lot of motivation behind giving, and not all of it is pleasing to the Lord. So the encouragement for me and the encouragement for you is is not to live for this life and not to strive for what perishes. The challenge is to find comfort, happiness, significance, and purpose in God's Son, Jesus. That's at the heart of what I'm trying to say. So dedicated missionary service or any other radically dedicated life that looks out of place. It looks countercultural. It feels like you're swimming against the, the stream. Any of these endeavors and any such dedication, well, it, it's only foolish depending on how you look at it. And if this life is all there is, uh, well, you should pursue perhaps other things. Eat, drink, be merry. But if this is a short pilgrimage, a prelude to an eternity, uh, then you were, we're definitely going to be sane to live in, in a radically different way. In light of the brevity and fragility of life, um, the words in Jim Elliott's um, journal m- many years ago, they're, they're biblical and they've, and they've stood the test of time. So it was actually not a significant journal entry. I, I had to read his journals recently. He was more like you and me He was more flawed and weak than you can possibly imagine. But in just an ordinary journal entry, he wrote those well-known words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott, the other four men that gave their lives in Ecuador, were no fools. And I would say that your perspective on cross-cultural missions has an accurate reflection of your worldview and how you see things.
And then what to make of that last final verse, because I don't want to let it go. You may be puzzling. I don't have all the answers, but if I could just speak to it briefly. His words there almost seem inappropriate, David's at the end. But we should never forget that a merciful God, he knows how men speak when they're desperate. He's a loving, merciful God. We have permission to speak to him boldly, to speak to God concerning what is on our hearts. And, And we should not forget this. We're just not willing to come clean often with God and, and to pour our heart out. We have in, in David a true example. And then when he asks God to look away, he's not asking for God to abandon him. He's asking God to withdraw discipline before he dies. He owns his sin. He asks to be freed from his transgression, but he asks for God's hand of discipline to relent before life ends. And before I go and am no more, it's just a poetic euphemism for death. Um, in Psalm 16, David, he looks with confidence to the future and the resurrection. So, so don't misunderstand his words in this passage. So I think most of us here, if we were asked, we would claim to want to live this life for God. At least we would pay lip service to this idea. But I have to ask myself periodically, what do my life ambitions and what do my daily pursuits, do they affirm or contradict that, that claim of wanting to live for God? question is, what am I truly living for? Not what do I say I'm living for, but what am I living for? What is it I want out of this life? What does success, though, look like in light of Psalm 39, Psalm 90, and other passages? So, brother and sister, I think there's something for us here to consider. Again, I invite you to Consider the passage later. Accompany it with the following psalms. It'll bless you. But I think we're called to sojourn well. We're often weary as pilgrims, but we ought to, uh, empowered by his grace, uh, live without regrets, keeping things in focus as they ought to be. There is only one hope in this short life, and we ought to live accordingly. Good Father, we thank you for your mercy to us, your great patience with us. And we ask that in your mercy, you would see fit to grant us a profitable, joyful pilgrimage into your very presence. In Jesus' name, amen.